0: Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to talk about dogs. Dogs have been an important part of Canadian history from the very beginning. The first dogs to arrive in Canada came from Siberia over 12,000 years ago. They were used for hunting, pulling sleds, and as companions for the indigenous people who made their way across the Bering Strait. In the 17th century, European settlers brought dogs with them as well and like the indigenous people, they relied on their dogs for companionship, hunting, and protection. Dogs have been some of Canada's most beloved heroes. In 1909, a Labrador retriever named Polar Bear helped the explorer Robert Perry reach the North Pole. In 1916, Canadians were captivated by the story of Bruno, a sheepdog who was rescued from war-torn Europe and refused to eat after his person passed away. In 1941, a Newfoundland named Gander saved the lives of several Canadian soldiers during the Battle of Hong Kong. Over the centuries, dogs have served Canadians in an ever-expanding variety of ways. Today, they work in law enforcement, detect cancer and COVID, help find missing children, and enable the blind to get around. But for most Canadians, dogs are much more than just working animals. Their loyalty, friendship, and unconditional love have made them part of our families, Countless dogs are beloved characters in Canadian art and film. Their stories have been told by such noteworthy authors as Farley Mowat, Lucy Maud Montgomery, and Stephen Leacock. They can make us laugh, they comfort us, they remind us of our better angels, of what our character could be. And perhaps that is why we love them so much. Which brings me to my puppy, Boris. Boris is a 10-year-old Irish Setter, Newfoundland Cross. The same breed as Gander, actually. Recently, he began hacking up his food. His bark became raspy, and he's having trouble breathing deeply. So I took him to see the vet. Boris has the canine version of Lou Gehrig's disease. His spinal cord will slowly degenerate, and over the next one to three years, he'll progressively lose control of the muscles he uses to play, bark, eat, and breathe. There is no cure, and the cause remains unknown. But there is a way to slow it down. With the laryngeal paralysis, Boris needs surgery. Without it, his constricted larynx will get worse faster, and he may pass away in only a few months. The problem is the surgery costs $5,000, which is well beyond what I can afford. So I'm asking for your help. I've set up a GoFundMe to pay for the vet. If you'd like to contribute, just click the link for Boris Fundraiser in my show notes. And if you've donated already, thank you. If you've shared, thank you as well. Thank you for helping us get a few more precious years together. Because it means the world to us both. And I want to say a very special thank you to Andrew. What I just read was written by him. He's a fantastic copywriter. And he was able to do this for me so that I could get the word out on my dog. So if you want to visit his website, go to sublimelime.ca. And that's two limes. That's sublimelime.ca. Today we're looking at a very large explosion. Not the Halifax explosion. I covered that back in December. This one is a planned explosion. In fact, it was one of the largest planned explosions that wasn't nuclear in history to that point. I'm talking about Ripple Rock. First, a bit of background on Ripple Rock itself. This underwater mountain sits at the Seymour Narrows along the Discovery Passage in British Columbia. Close to Campbell River, it presented a significant hazard to boats coming through the area. George Vancouver wrote in his diary in 1792 that it was one of the vilest stretches of water in the entire world. The indigenous of the area had a legend that the highest peak of Ripple Rock rose close to the surface centuries ago. Young indigenous would show off by standing on the rock at low tide as the water was up to their waists. The indigenous said that the rock vibrated so much under their feet that their cheeks shook. Named by Captain Richards because of the standing waves that its summits made as the tidal current moved through the strait, it would continue to prey on ships well into the 20th century. The changing tide would change the elevation between the top of the rock and the water from 10 to 20 feet creating a bottleneck for ships. Mariners would call it the worst hazard to navigation on the west coast of North America. McLean's would write of the rock, quote, Ripple rock sets up whirlpools, eddies, vertical currents, cross currents, combers, rapids, and almost every form of turbulence known to nautical science, End quote. Twice per day, for 20 to 40 minutes, a slack tide would occur in the Ripple rock area. The high-water slack and the low-water slack was the moment of pause between the flood into the ebb tide and vice versa. It was during this time that the narrows were calm, and ships had to sail the narrow passage during the slack time, as it was the only time navigation was possible around Ripple Rock. One man would say in 1921, quote, They stand still for hours, struggling against the current making no progress whatsoever. Even at half tide, it is no uncommon thing for a vessel to take an hour and a half to cover three miles of the Narrows, while if the tide is with her, she does it in six or seven minutes. End quote. During this time, things would get busy. Jack Scott, a Vancouver Sun columnist, would say, quote, Seymour Narrows became as busy as Granville Street. End quote. The first large ship to ever hit the rock was the USS Saranac, which crashed into it in 1875 on its way to Alaska. It's said, though, that a Russian man-of-war crashed into the rock back when Russia owned Alaska. Records themselves were not kept until 1875. In 1884, the third and last warship hit the rock. This was a Royal Navy vessel, satellite, but thankfully the crew was able to escape safely. Midshipman B.M. Chambers wrote of the wreck he was in, quote, I recall satellites steaming up to a speed of 13 knots and getting caught in the swirling torrent of Seymour Narrows like a chip in a gutter. We were swept into the very center of the pass. I saw the upright waves above ripple Rock seemingly rushing towards us. I felt the ship heel over as her keel caught the top of the rock. For a moment we hung, then we were free with a loss of 40 feet of our false bottom. With that memory in mind, I shall never believe that engineers can attack the rock successfully from the surface of the water. End quote. The letter Chambers, now an admiral, wrote to the Vancouver province about the wreck in 1946, helped spur on public support for destroying the rock. I want to talk about the local history atlas. This was created by one of my listeners, Ben Woodward, and it's fantastic. It's this wonderful website where you can see a, a google maps image of canada and you can visit all of the places in canada and within these places are my local history podcast episodes that you can listen to and one of the great things about it is you can add to it you can put your own pictures in you can put your own information it's creating this wonderful historical mosaic of canada and it's a wonderful website. Uh, I have the link in my show notes. But if you also want to visit yourself, it's atlas.digitalhistory.ca. And we can create this wonderful mosaic of Canada's history. All of us, you can learn about Canada's history. If you're going on a road trip, you can use this wonderful site to see where you're going and the amazing things that you can see. So be sure to check it out. From 1875 until 1958, 20 large ships and 100 small ships were sunk or badly damaged on the rock. It is known that at least 110 people drowned in the accidents caused by the rock. One such ship was the USS Wachusett, which passed through the narrows during a strong ebb and became caught in an extremely large whirlpool. This caused it to strike heavily on Ripple Rock, losing a large portion of its false keel and splintering heavily. In nineteen nineteen the CPR steamship Ena hit the rock and sprang a leak, resulting in a distress signal being sent out. Two other ships came in to find the ship was taking on water, but thankfully did not sink. In nineteen twenty seven, the Princess Beatrice hit the rock, losing its rudder and having to limp into port. The captain was praised with the Victoria Times columnist stating quote. He kept the big ship with its hundreds of passengers safely in the roaring channel until the steamship Cardina, which was nearby, placed a line aboard and towed the rudderless vessel into safety, As soon as the first ship hit the rock in the 1800s, it was decided the rock had to go, and an explosion of monumental proportions was needed. One plan had a bridge being built to connect Vancouver Island with Blue Inlet, using the rock as a support, but that wasn't favoured by many people. In 1929, the Canadian Merchant Service Guild, which represented a thousand Canadian masters and mates, were urging for the removal of Ripple Rock, calling it a menace to all navigation. In 1931, the Canadian Marine Commission recommended removing the rock completely, but it would be over a decade until the government actually gave permission to do so. The fact that it was not until the Second World War that actual attempts were made to deal with the rock came about because of an argument between Vancouver and Victoria, Those in Victoria fought to preserve the rock so that it could be used as a bridge, while those in Vancouver wanted it destroyed. This would go up to the political level with each side taking the side of their constituents. It took the United States getting involved and voicing its concern over the safety of its ammunition ships bound for Alaska and the request that the rock be destroyed. Regarding the proposal for a bridge, this was widely criticized by boat owners in the area who worried it would impact shipping. Captain C.D. Neurotsis, manager of the B.C. Coast Steamship Service, stated, I would like to state that the original move to have Ripple Rock removed was started by the mariners and not by the railroads. He was against the bridge as he felt it would impact the growth of passenger boat traffic through the area. It was estimated that the building of the bridge would cost $12 million or $226 million today, The removal of Ripple Rock was opposed by many residents of Vancouver Island because, again, they felt it was their only chance to have a railroad connection with the rest of the country. Eventually, as new residents moved into the island and into Vancouver, the desire for a bridge faded. The first attempt to destroy the rock with explosives was in 1943. Floating drilling barges were tasked with drilling into the rock to blast it to pieces. This approach was abandoned quickly as cables tended to break every 48 hours. Around this same time, one ship to hit the rock was the William J. Stewart, the Department of Transport's hydrographic survey ship that had a laboratory on it worth a million dollars. Ironically, it was checking the charted contours of Ripple Rock when it struck the rock. The Vancouver Province stated, quote, It was as delicious a bit of irony as the ironical sea was ever engineered. No ship in all the world knew the position of Ripple Rock better than the William J. Stewart, or how to avoid its fangs yet through no error of seamanship she was the ship that suffered End quote. "In 1945 another attempt was made using two large overhead steel lines that were 3600 feet long and weighed 11 tons each these were strung across the narrows and shipping was halted for several hours contractors had to drill holes into the rocks for the explosives but this was abandoned when only 93 of the 1500 controlled explosives were successful after nearly $1 million was spent in the attempts of the 1940s to deal with the rock, Alphonse Fournier, the Minister of Public Works, said in the House of Commons, quote, I am disgusted with Ripple Rock. Let somebody else deal with it for a change. End quote. For nearly a decade, the rock would remain, serving as a hazard for the 150,000 passengers who traveled from B.C. to Alaska every year, and the 2,000 freighters that navigated the area carrying cargoes worth $30 million. $30 million. Then there were the 7,000 tugs, barges, and small crafts that had to make it through the Ripple Rock area safely. Various plans were put forward to deal with the rock, from plastering it with an array of mortars, using Navy torpedoes, to even using an atomic bomb to completely vaporize the rock. Senator G.G. G. McGeer stated, quote, If we could put one of those bombs into Ripple Rock and get it into the right place at the right time, there just wouldn't be any Ripple Rock, end quote. The National Research Council quickly spoke up regarding the atomic bomb idea, stating that it would create a wall of water 100 feet high that would surge into Vancouver. In 1953, the National Research Council of Canada commissioned a feasibility study on planting explosive charges underneath the peaks of the rock. Three companies, Northern Construction Company, J.W. Stewart Limited, and Boyle's Brother Drilling Company were granted the contract worth $3 million. United Kingdom's Atomic Weapons Research Establishment were also very interested in the explosion, as it was going to be a very large, non-nuclear explosion. From November of 1955 to April of 1958, 75 men working in three shifts built a 500-foot vertical shaft from Maud Island and a 2,370-foot long horizontal shaft to the base of Ripple Rock. Two more main shafts were built from the Twin Peaks. The Victoria Times colonists reported, quote, they have driven tunnels underwater to points directly below each of the two pinnacles of the sullen menace that squats on the surface of Seymour Narrows, threatening every vessel using the narrow, dangerous, tie-torn waters. A total of 1,270 metric tons of Nitromex 2H explosives were used. This was ten times what would have been used for an explosion above water. And there were worries by some that it would destroy Campbell River nearby, while some worried that a tsunami would hit Japan or that millions of fish would die. A few people even theorized that it would result in the big one, an earthquake many in British Columbia have been expecting for years. In the blast area, 200 people had to be evacuated to ensure they would not be injured. They were told they could return to the area after the explosion had taken place. In nearby Campbell River, every hotel and available room was booked because of the influx of people coming into the area. Also, in the community, the power and gas lines were shut off, and residents stacked dishes on the floor and took pictures off the wall on April fifth, nineteen fifty eight at nine thirty one a m Doctor Domange pressed a button, and one-fifth of a second later, the explosion took place. A total of six hundred and thirty five thousand metric tons of rock and water were displaced by the explosion. Rocks and debris were thrown a thousand feet into the air. The blast was large enough that it cleared 45 feet of vertical rock, providing ships with plenty of room to go over. And while it was a very large explosion, there was almost no noise as the water muffled the majority of it. In nearby Campbell River, people in the houses felt the ground shake beneath them, but no damage was reported. Then rain began to fall over the community, which some blamed on the blast. At the University of Alberta's physics department in Edmonton, three minutes after the blast they recorded the first wave which had reflected off the earth's crust. Further shocks were recorded at in regular intervals for the next two minutes. The shock wave from the explosion raised the level of the earth in Edmonton by one one hundred thousandth of an inch. The waves were recorded from a pickup truck using a coil of wire and a suspended magnet placed on the frozen ground to avoid shock waves caused by cars driving along the road. As for the destructive aspects in the area there is a brief 25 foot tsunami and a few fish died, but that was it. The only damage that was reported was to a wall clock in a mining site at Quadra Island. The Victoria Times columnist reported, quote, Like a veteran performer determined to give his best in his farewell appearance, old man Ripple Rock staged a death scene today that was truly memorable. Out of a fatal cataclysmic blow came incredible beauty. Harden Newsman gasped audibly as grey-black design hung for a few seconds in the sky as though posing for funeral pictures, end quote.
2: One can associate the residential school system with tuberculosis and tuberculosis with the residential school system.
1: We had Indigenous parents, communities, students, church employees, teachers, and individuals who are part of Indian affairs like Dr. Peter henderson Bryce, giving their critiques in their own time. People
0: hid when the tuberculosis screening came to their communities, because they knew that the result of getting screened was that they they could be taken away. I believe a lot of people were used, government officials who just thought they were doing the right thing. They were doing what they were told. First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples are already told our story. It's now time to tell the other side of the story. We
1: need to take a serious look at parts of the system from the past that we may be replicating today. I'm Maya Foster-Sanchez, and
0: this is the story of a national crime. Coming this fall, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The RCMP were on hand for the explosion to ensure no one would be nowhere near within three miles of the explosion. TV crews and engineers were housed in a bunker 7,000 feet away from the blast, The 75 press representatives also had to sign a document releasing the federal government of any damage claims that may result from the blast. They were each given a silver dollar to make the release form a binding document. In another bunker, Lieutenant Governor Frank Ross was on hand, along with the Federal Public Works Minister Howard Green. Rear Admiral Herbert Rayner and Major General Chris Vokes also watched the blast, as did many other dignitaries.
2: There are exactly three minutes to go now. This is a rather interesting picture, perhaps, for the people. This funny-looking place we're in is our bunker. As you can see, it's pretty well constructed. And as you can also see, it's just about as full of people as it can po- pro- possibly be. Down at the far end, the CBC uh, radio commentators, uh, film cameramen by the score, uh, then our colleague from the French uh, network, uh, Bill and I, and just over here, uh, the two cameras. Of course, you can't see the camera that's taking the pictures, but there's the other one, and out on its snout, that great long snorkel that sticks out there is a 25-inch lens, and that'll pretty well put uh, Ripple Rock right smack in the middle of your living room when it goes up or out or sideways or whatever it's going to do in two minutes and 15 seconds right now. How about the countdown, Ted? Well, the countdown bill will be your baby, and you will start that with uh, one minute to go until uh, blast time, and then Bill will count down, uh, starting at 30 seconds, he'll give you down 30, 25, and count it down, uh, stopping when there are five seconds remaining until the time from the blast. Then we will uh, open our mouths, which is the approved thing to do. We have been told uh, we're not plugging our ears, because even those in the firing bunker only 2,500 feet from the scene of action uh, have decided they don't have to plug their ears, but we have our helmets on. We will have our mouths open our eyes wide open and we'll just stand here and watch like you're going to do
1: that placid looking water at this moment is about to erupt actually at this moment the tide is flowing ebbing i should say it's ebbing north at
2: approximately 10 knots and it is 2 feet above mean low water countdown will start with bell in just about 10 seconds and from 1 minute uh, until minus minus five seconds, Bill will give you the countdown to blast time. One minute
1: to blast time. And I want to tell you that five seconds before the blast, you will probably see some rockets go into the air, towering up 13,000 feet for the scientists to make their measurements of the actual blast. Forty-five seconds to go. I I don't know about you, Ted, but I'm really tensed right now. There is exactly 35 seconds to go. 30 seconds. 25. 20. 20. And that was the end of Ripple Rock.
0: The explosion is now a national historic event, and it was seen live on CBC television coast to coast. It was one of the first live coast-to-coast television broadcasts in Canadian history. The Victoria Times columnist reported, quote, TV viewers were unanimous in calling the CBC coverage one of the greatest jobs of on-the-spot camera work ever seen. The big 25-inch telescopic lens brought the blast into thousands of living rooms, end quote. One entrepreneur began to sell tiny chunks of the rock in a brief flurry of tourist interest in the area. One man nearby who saw the blast was R.D. Merrill. He had first moved to the area in 1885, and that was when he saw Ripple Rock for the first time. He was 89 years old when the blast occurred, destroying the rock he had seen for so much of his life. Captain Henry Hall, the Squamish Queen, would have the honor of going through the Narrows with the first ship since the explosion. He said, quote, I made the water out to be 56 feet under me, but I don't know how accurate the sounder was because even then, three hours after the blast, the water was still full of big air bubbles that could upset the instruments. Today, with the rock removed, as many as 20 large cruise ships a day sail past Campbell River over the rock during the peak of cruise season, along with many, many other ships. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the Ripple Rock Explosion. If you did, please leave a rating and review. Next week, we're looking at Darcy McGee. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to Canada, and clicking Donate. And I also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons. And I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Martin Strach, Sarah White, Tom McMillan, Mike Sullivan, Wendy Mills, Keelan Prignitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard T, Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin. Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nixon Ree, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseeth, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., JP Baer, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, CBC, Maclean's Wikipedia, Victoria Dimes Colonist, Nanaimo Daily News, Kingston Week Standard, and the Edmonton Journal.